we got to get started with tonight's message because I've already cut like 2,000 words out of this and there's still too much. So um, bear with me because we're wrapping up a series and wrapping up a series is kind of hard sometimes because, because you want to kind of bring everything together in a way that makes sense. And so hopefully we can do that tonight with the discussion in 1 Corinthians 8. So tonight we're wrapping up this series we've been doing on being servants. Um, We've called it At Your Service because that's what we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be at each other's service and at the service of the Lord, obviously. And so I figured now, before we get into our passage in 1 Corinthians 8, now would be a good time for us to just briefly be reminded of, of what we've been studying for the past four weeks. All right, I'm done with water. Uh, homiletic students, you know. <laughs> uh, first, uh, first, we started this series. Zach talked about the heart of a servant, and that was a good place to start. The heart of the servant was obviously modeled for us by Jesus, who provided that example for us when he washed his disciples' feet, even though he came to earth so he could be crowned king. He was willing to get his hands dirty. And then we looked at having the mind of a servant, the week after that, again, with Jesus as our example, because having the right heart should lead to having the right thoughts. We can focus on serving if we make, our, make sure our thoughts are in line with Jesus' thoughts, and we looked at what some of Jesus' thoughts were and talked about how we can think the same way. And last week, Nick talked about the goals of a servant because there are good reasons to serve and there are bad reasons to serve, and we just want to make sure that we have the correct motivation as we serve the Lord and as we serve each other. But tonight, we're looking at the decisions of a servant, which is really just the next logical step. Because if we have the right goals, like we talked about last week, that will lead us to making the right decisions in our lives that will move us toward those goals. So tonight's going to be super practical, and it's really going to be super simple. We're just talking about some basic decision-making principles that help us decide how to spend our time and resources, who we spend our time with, Simple stuff like that. But I want to talk about decision-making in the context of your service to the Lord and to other people, because it's only natural that if we're trying to be servants, then we should try to understand the impact that, that each decision in our life can have on our ability to serve. We need to learn to make decisions biblically each and every day, not just on Sundays and Tuesdays, because it's simple. We need to learn to consider our decisions as servants, so we can use our decisions to be better servants. That may seem like a small thing, but this is what really makes the difference between someone who's simply working as a servant versus somebody who's trying to be a servant and live as a servant. So let's start by reading our passage in 1 Corinthians 8, and then we'll examine some things that we should be considering when we're faced with decisions in life if we want to be better servants of the Lord. So let's read 1 Corinthians 8, and we're actually going to read the whole chapter, um, but it's a short one. It says, now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we, have all know- or we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge, for some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, 
and their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat are we the worst. But take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see, see thee which hast knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And, and through thy knowledge shall thy weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Therefore, if meat make my brother, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the words while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. So, this passage in this passage, Paul is addressing the Corinthian believers regarding this decision they have on whether or not they should eat this meat that was offered to idols. Clearly. Just by reading the passage, you can tell that in some cases it was okay to eat this meat, but in other cases it wasn't. And we'll talk about the specifics of that decision as we break down this passage. But practically, you'll find similar decisions in your life. Not that you're regularly offered meat that was sacrificed to an idol. I doubt that happens often, though, though it may make you think twice about those free samples at the grocery store. But while this specific decision, I don't even know if they do free samples now. Is that, a, is that like a pre-COVID thing? Um, but while this specific decision, this, this eating meat offered unto idols, that may never come up for you, you'll find that most decisions in your life are rarely clear black and white decisions. Most decisions outside of deciding whether or not to sin are more complicated than that. So if we, so we want to take those decisions seriously, there's some things we can learn from this decision in 1 Corinthians 8. So let's pray before we dig in. God, I pray that you bless our time tonight. And I pray that as we consider being servants and and potentially being servant leaders, Lord, that you will be what guides our decision-making. Because at the end of the day, Lord, we understand that that you have the answers and we don't. And so we want to get our lives lined up with you. and, And that means making decisions on a daily basis that allow us to be servants toward you and toward one another. Again, I pray that you bless our time tonight and uh, just show us what, what you expect from us in your word. In your name I pray, amen. All right, so like I said, we're going to be looking at three things that we should be considering when it comes to making good biblical decisions if we want to be servants. And first, we need to consider the reality, and that's point number one. And this is important to consider because many people in our day and age don't seem to be living in reality. I don't, I don't need to get into detail You just get on social media for five minutes and you'll see what I mean. Reality or truth have very little meaning anymore in our world. But man, if we want to be servants of the Lord and accomplish things for his glory, then we have to be different than the rest of the world. And we have to consider the truth of a given situation when we're making a decision. And there's two specific things you have to do if you want to consider reality. And first, you have to know the truth. That's letter A. And this shouldn't come as a surprise to you, but if you want to consider the truth in your decision-making, then you first have to know what it is. And the good news is, you can find this truth in God's Word. So when you're making a particular decision, ask yourself the question, what does God's Word say about this decision? It's really that simple. So like the Corinthians in our passage, there's some knowledge that you and I should know. And the knowledge we're after is obviously God's knowledge. 1 Samuel 2.3 says that the Lord is a God of knowledge. So even, even though our passage tonight in 1 Corinthians 8 says that knowledge has a tendency to puff you up, God's knowledge is a good thing. 
So we should be after God's knowledge when we're making decisions like Paul is telling the Corinthians in this passage. Because in verse 2, he's clear that there's some things that they ought to know. There's some things they should know. So if you want real knowledge about a given situation, that's what you have to keep in mind. God is the God of knowledge because he knows everything. So if you want to know the truth of a given situation, you have to go to God to get that truth. And fortunately, God gave us his knowledge in the Bible. That's why the Bible regularly tells us to seek knowledge from God through his word. For example, Proverbs 2 verses 1 through 6 says, My son, if thou wilt receive my words and hide my commandments with thee, so that thou incline thine ear unto wisdom and apply thine heart to understanding, yea, if thou criest after knowledge and liftest up thy voice for understanding, if thou seekest her as silver and searchest for her as for hid treasures, then thou shalt understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord giveth wisdom, out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. So if you want the knowledge of God, well, you have everything you need as long as you have his words, as long as you have his commandments. All the information and all the principles we need to make good biblical decisions as the servants of God can be found in his book. Praise the Lord that we don't have to go searching elsewhere. Can you imagine if you had to find the truth on the internet? I can't do it, so good luck. But man, we have his word, and it's really that simple. But the trick is we actually have to seek that knowledge. We can't just know it exists in the Bible. We actually have to open the book and find it. But when you find it, well, you know it. So if we want to be good servants of the Lord and make biblical decisions based on biblical principles, we just have to stop treating the Bible like it's just a book that we carry with us to church a couple of days a week. We have to pick it up and make it a part of our daily lives. We have to read it. We have to study it. We have to meditate on it. We have to memorize it. And we have to understand it for what it is. The very words of God preserved for us so that we can have the knowledge of God. Man, it's a miracle that we even have it. And too often we take it for granted. Too often, we live our lives just like the world with no knowledge of what God says about any of our particular decisions. We just make decisions left and right and never even bother to consult God's word to know what he says about him. Man, shame on us when that's true. The God of all knowledge has given us his words to live by, his truth to live by, and too often we don't care. Well, if that's true of us, Man, it's time, to start, it's time that we start knowing what God's word has to say about our situations before we make our decisions. Man, it's easy to want to know what God's word says about something after you make a decision and it blows up in your face. And then you're like, oh, I should have done this. Well, yeah, you could have known that before it blew up in your face. But man, consider God's word before you make these decisions. And, and that's the primary thing that should separate us from the world. Because the world looks all over for truth. And sometimes they even invent their own truth. But but man, we want the truth, and we know where to find it. That's the truth that should be guiding and directing our lives. And if you really believe that, you'll seek that truth in the only place it's found, and then you'll know the truth. And we can examine this principle in our passage regarding eating meat offered to idols, this decision that was before the Corinthians, because the things that the Corinthians ought to know are found in verses 4 to 6 which, look at them again, it says, As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, 
the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. That's what they should have known. They should have known that this meat that had been offered to idols wasn't anything special. But man, that's tr- that was tricky for some people, because at this point in history, pagan people would sacrifice animals to idols, idols for other gods, and they would sell that meat so that people could have it without having to do the sacrifice themselves. And all Paul is saying here is that the process of sacrifice doesn't actually do anything to the meat. So first of all, all these people who paid extra for their special sacrifice meat, they were just wasting their money. But the question here was whether or not it was okay for a Christian to eat that meat. Like if they go over to someone's house and they have that meat and they serve it to them, what do they do? Do they eat it knowing where it comes from or do they not eat it? Well, the truth is that this meat was no different from ordinary meat. So, of course, a Christian could eat the meat. That was the reality of the situation. It's not even that these other gods didn't exist. Actually, verse 5 sure makes it seem like they did. And if you do the study, which we don't have time to do tonight, that was part of the 2,000 words I cut out, you'll find that God actually talks to these gods a couple of times. So they definitely exist, which, which is interesting. But even though people sacrificed animals to idols of these gods in our passage, God is clear here through Paul that the sacrifice doesn't actually do anything substantial to the meat itself. Yes, the act of sacrifice to a pagan idol was an act of worship, and that wasn't good. But if you're just eating the meat after the fact, you're not worshiping anything. So Paul's just saying, who cares? What's the matter? It doesn't really matter whether or not you eat the meat, or does it? Well, we'll see later that it does matter, but not in the way that the Corinthians were worried about. That's why Paul is explaining what they ought to know. He's explaining the truth of the situation for them to understand. So when it comes to making decisions in our life, we should do what 2 Peter 3 says in verse 18. It says, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because the simple truth is that as you grow in knowledge of God and of his word, you'll be better equipped to make biblical decisions as your biblical knowledge increases. And this, that's so simple that it borders on obvious, but it's something that we often forget to consider when making decisions in our life. But man, knowing the truth, that's only half the battle. Knowing is half the battle. Um, that's, that's old for me, so don't think I'm dating myself there. Um, it's an old G.I. Joe thing. I never watched G.I. Joe. It's too young for that. Anyways, knowing the truth is only half the deal. Once you know the truth, you have to apply the truth, and that's letter B. And we know that this is necessary because of of what knowledge can do to you. Paul tells us in verse 1 of this passage, Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we have all knowledge, or we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. So we know that knowledge can puff you up. So if you're just learning more and more things, you might might find yourself getting puffed up, which getting a large head is how we would say that today. You might walk around with a little bit of pride, thinking you know something. But if you actually apply that knowledge of your, in your life, you can help prevent that. What's, what's important for us to understand is that a willingness to apply God's knowledge is actually more foundational than your pursuit of God's knowledge. 2 Peter 1.5 says, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge. So you need to have virtue before you get knowledge, and virtue is just knowing or doing what you know to do. That's something we have to decide before we even get new knowledge. We should be committed to living out what the Bible tells us before we go to the Bible and have it speak to our lives. That way, when we learn something new, our default reaction is to apply it 
and live out the new truth as best we can. The point is your dedication should come before your education. Your heart should be totally set on doing what God's words expects of you and then allowing it to shape your life. This is what James 1 talks about when it tells us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Let's read verses uh, 22 through 25 of James 1. It says, But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Real quick, how many of you look in a mirror in the morning when you're getting ready for your day, even, even for just a little bit? Yeah, it's pretty much everybody, right? Most of us, at least for a little bit, look in the mirror. Um, how many of you look perfect at your first glance in the mirror? <laughs> yeah, if we're being honest, pretty much none of us. No, you look in the mirror, you see what's wrong with your face, and then you fix it before you start your day. Well, James 1 is just saying that if you go to the Bible to learn without trying to apply it to your life, you see how messed up you are in the mirror and you don't make any adjustments. And that's not the natural response to Scripture. We should let the Bible show us new truth that needs to be applied in our lives, but then we actually have to apply it for it to make a difference in our lives. God can show us all the cool things we could want to learn, but if we don't apply it, it's a waste. I told you tonight it was going to be simple, but man, this step of applying biblical truth to your life is the only way you'll be able to live the life that God wants for you. Applying biblical truth in your decision-making is what's going to make you a true servant of the Lord on a day-to-day basis and not someone who just acts like a servant from time to time. Knowing what the Bible says only matters in your decision-making if you apply what you know. And regarding the meat offered unto idols in 1 Corinthians 8, man, applying the, the truth of that situation just means not caring about whether meat was offered to idols. So when you go over to someone's house and they give you meat, you don't you know, tell them, this, you're a terrible person, you're eating this meat, you're worshiping blah, 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 gods and idols, and like, you're yelling at them for something that doesn't matter. But if you know the truth that God is the only, the, the only true God, then you can eat meat even if someone else, is, someone else believes it's special because of some false God. So with your decision in life, whether meat-related or otherwise, the first step is always to consult God's Word. Do you know what God's Word says about this decision? If not, find out. And don't be afraid to ask for help if you need it. And when you know what God says, well, you just apply it to your life. You live it out. We'll talk about some non-meat-related examples before we're done tonight, but, but this is incredibly important when we're talking about being servants, especially when we're talking about being servant leaders. If you want to be a servant of God, man, you want to make sure you're living as an example to others. And the only way you're going to do that is if you're learning to run your decisions through God's Word and act accordingly so that what people see in your life lines up with what they read in God's Word. We can't just keep making the decisions that we think are best. We have to make the decisions that God thinks is best. And the only way we can know that is by going to his word and applying it to our life. Now, this is easy when you're making a decision of which the Bible speaks clearly and directly. Oh, the Bible says that this thing is sin. Therefore, 
I'm going to decide not to do that thing. That's, that's easy. But like I said earlier, not every decision is that clear. Sometimes, as in the case of this question of whether or not to eat meat offered to idols, some more thought and some more consideration is required. And we'll see here that Paul also tells us to consider the ramifications, and that's point number two. And this is what we see him mention in verses 9 through 13. The basic question you want to answer when considering the ramifications is, what effects could this decision have on my ministry or on the people around me? So this point is also based on Bible principles, which you should make yourself aware of. But this point is much less black and white because you have to think about how general Bible principles might apply to various situations and decisions that pop up in your life. Considering the ramifications isn't always easy, but it does get easier as you do it more and more. So, so rest assured. But in order to try to keep this simple, uh, Paul broke this down into two steps. So first we need to think, of the po- think about the possibilities, and that's letter A. And this is where you step back and think about what could happen before you make a particular decision, not after. In our passage, Paul warns about the possibility of creating a stumbling block for a weaker believer who doesn't know everything that you know. So let's assume for a moment that you're a Corinthian who knows all the stuff about meat offered to idols that we talked about in the first point. You know offering meat to idols is weird, pagan worship, but you also know that the meat itself is fine to eat. So you apply that knowledge in your life so you don't care if you eat it or not, because it doesn't really matter, uh, at least not to the Lord. Does that mean it's okay to eat that pagan meat in all circumstances? Well, no. Paul explains why. Um, Look at verse 7 of our passage. It says, Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. He continues, you can see in verse 9, he says, But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. And then in verse 12, he even goes as far to say, But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. So even though God's word is clear that the act of eating the meat wasn't a sin, it became a sin when it negatively affects a weaker believer who doesn't know everything they ought to know yet. Your decisions can cause others to stumble, even if they're biblically based. And that's a point that every maturing, growing Christian has to realize as they're growing and maturing. Sure, eventually, those weaker Christians should learn the same truth about the situation uh, that you've learned. But learning truth takes time, and not everybody is going to know everything that you know. So if you want to be serving those weaker, younger Christians, then you have to take that into consideration when you're making your decision, because you don't want to be a stumbling block to them. You want to build them up. You don't want to trip them up, because Paul said you're sinning unto God when you do that. And there's more than one way that you can trip people up. You can create stumbling blocks in different ways. In this example, Paul lays out you can lead someone to violating their own conscience or by making them think that sinful behavior is okay. We see a similar idea in 1 Corinthians 10. Verse 27 says, If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast, and ye be disposed to go, whatsoever is set before you eat, asking no question for conscience sake. But if any man say unto you, This is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake. For the, Lord, or for the earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof. And then verse 29 says, Conscience, I say, 
not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? And so, man, that's exactly the situation that I was talking about. You go over to somebody else's house and they have this meat. Well, what do you do? Well, you have to make a decision based on what you know. And the principle you have to remember is that until someone has knowledge of the truth, which comes from God's word in a given situation, they're guided by their conscience. So if someone believes that eating meat offered to idols is a sin, well, you can cause them to violate their own conscience by making them think it's okay to do so without first showing them in God's word that it isn't a sin. So don't get me wrong. Our conscience is no substitute for God's word. So don't be afraid to show people the truth. But until they know that truth, you could be creating a stumbling block for them. Another way you could create a stumbling block is by leading them to believe you're sinning. If they think eating meat offered to idols is a sin and they see you doing it, they might think you're living in sin. Sure, you're not directly sinning, but in their mind you are. That will lead them to question your character, your leadership, your adherence to God's word, all kinds of stuff. And that won't help them and it won't help your ministry to them. That's why 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says, abstain from all appearance of evil. Not abstain from all evil. So if there's a chance that something you're doing could look like you're sinning, it's probably best to decide to not do it, right? Even if you know it's not a sin, man, not everybody else does. So is it worth doing, whatever it is? Well, that'll depend on the situation. The point is, have you thought about that before you make, make your decision? Because you should. There are certainly other ways that you can create stumbling blocks in the lives of those around you, and doing so always hinders others from responding to your ministry the way they should. That can apply to lost people that you're trying to reach. That can apply to fellow church members that you're trying to edify, which is what we've been talking about through this entire series on service. So you have to consider the possibilities if you want to prevent your decisions from having a negative impact on your service to others. We've touched on 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, just about every week in this series, I think. But as a reminder, uh, it'll be on the screen. But if you want to be a servant, man, you just have to adjust what you do so you can better serve others. That's, that's the reality of being a humble servant uh, the way Jesus was. You have to make yourself all things to all men so you can have positive influence on their lives. So the point is, are you willing to put your desires to the side so you can serve others. Jesus certainly did that, which we've seen. And he's given us liberty to serve him. But we have to be careful with that liberty. Uh, that's what Paul tells us, and that's what letter B is. Use your liberty for the benefit of others. Hopefully, we're all aware that having a personal relationship with Christ comes with some liberty. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says, Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Praise the Lord. So as Christians in Christ, we have liberty. Romans 6 is clear that Jesus Christ has set us free from sin, and that includes freedom from both the penalty of sin and the dominion of sin. And that's a fantastic thing. That's worth celebrating and getting excited about. But that said, Paul has some warnings for us regarding our liberty. Because we've been freed from the penalty of sin, some Christians think that, that they have a license to sin since they're secure in Christ. If I'm going to get to spend forever in heaven with Jesus anyways, what's it matter how I live right now? Well, Paul disagrees with that. Galatians 5.1 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. 
Man, Jesus didn't set us free from our sin just so we can continue serving our sin. He set us free so that we no longer have to. He gave us liberty so that we can now serve him instead. Sure, you can continue to live in your sin and still enjoy eternal life in heaven when you die. The gift of God is eternal life and nothing you ever do or don't do can take that away from you. That said, if you choose to live in sin despite having been set free from it, you're totally missing the point. We become the sons of God so we can have a relationship with him and serve him with our lives. And those are things that just weren't possible before we got saved, before we were set free from sin. That's why the Bible is so clear on why we have liberty in Christ. The reason he gave us liberty is so that we can serve. Galatians 5.13 says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. We're capable of serving one another now in unity and humility and in sacrifice, like we talked about a couple weeks ago. We're capable of serving one another out of our love for one another. But we're obviously not just serving one another. 1 Peter 2.16 says, As free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. That's how we're supposed to use our liberty. liberty. We've been given liberty so that we can serve the Lord. But when you start using your liberty to make selfish decisions, well, you're living out of balance. Our liberty to make those decisions ought to benefit the Lord and those around us, especially those we're serving. That's why it's so important that you think about how your decisions could affect those around you. Because if your only motivation for making a decision are your selfish desires, you're missing the point of the liberty you've been giving. And this point, considering the ramifications, thinking about how your life affects those around you, Man, this is what really makes the difference between a a normal Christian and a mature believer. This is what makes the difference between someone who comes to church twice a week and someone who lives their life as a servant of the Lord. Man, do those you're serving in your church body, do you love those you're serving in your church body enough to humble yourself, to put your desires aside, and to put other people before you? We've seen at length how Jesus did that for us and for his disciples. So will you follow his example and take the time to actually stop and think about what you're doing and how it could affect others positively or negatively? And we'll get into some specific examples in point three, which is consider the reminder. And by the reminder, uh, it was an R word, so it went along with the other R words, but by the reminder, I'm just referring to everything we've talked about in this series as a whole. Hopefully this series has served as a reminder for all of us about what our lives are for. We exist to serve the Lord and we're empowered to serve him because of Jesus' sacrifice for us and the example of service he set for us. That's evident in his heart, that's evident in his mind, and it's evident in his goals for us. We've looked at all of that the past three to four weeks. And what I'm suggesting now is that we have to take all of that into consideration when it comes to making daily decisions in our lives. Every decision, no matter how big or small, should be considered for its potential impact it has on our service. Yes, we have to consider what the Bible says. God knows best. So we have to trust his word as our source of truth and live according to the Bible. But we have to think about the potential ramifications of our decisions, because rarely does a decision just affect you. Your decisions almost always have an impact on those around you. So do your part to know what those potential impacts are before you make your decisions so you prevent yourself from putting a stumbling block in someone else's way. 
But this kind of thinking isn't always easy to do, which is why we have to remind ourselves of this stuff from time to time. And I realize that the example in our passage isn't readily applicable to your life. The decision of whether or not to eat meat offered to idols is probably not going to come up. So, in the context of desiring to be a servant, I want to take a couple examples and apply what we've talked about in this series. And the first example may be touchy for some people, but that's what makes it fun. So, uh, example one is deciding whether to drink alcohol. And look, don't think that I'm trying to call out something in your life. I'm not. I don't know what most of you do in your personal time, and, and I don't need to. I'm just using this as an example because it's actually the most similar example I can think of to eating meat offered to idols, at least in our culture. But consider the, this example with me in the context of what we talked about tonight. Do you know what God says in his word about drinking alcohol? Do you care enough to find out? Well, we don't actually have time to do that study tonight. You should do that study on your own if this is a decision you plan on making. You might be surprised to know that once you do that study, you'll actually have a hard time proving that the Bible forbids Christians from drinking alcohol. Yes, it clearly commands us not to get drunk, but a person doesn't get drunk on one drop of alcohol. And you never actually find drinking alcohol short of getting drunk called a sin in the Bible, assuming it's, it's legal for you to do. That said, if you do the study of alcohol by looking up times when wine or strong drink are mentioned, well, you'll find that the overwhelming majority of the time the Bible puts alcohol in a negative light as something to be careful of and even something to avoid. The only exception I'm aware of is when Paul tells Timothy to drink a little wine when his tummy's upset. (laughs) But like with eating meat offered to idols, just because something is not a sin doesn't mean you should do it because... That's, no, that's considering the reality. Well, what about considering the ramifications? So, yes, do the study of alcohol on your own so you can know what the Bible says about it. That should be the most important part of your decision-making process. But after you do that, consider the decision, or consider how the decision to drink alcohol could affect others. And you'll quickly realize why this is a pretty complicated issue, and it's an interesting decision uh, for anyone to make. Consider the other believers you're trying to serve. How could drinking alcohol affect them? Because that's something you need to think about. Have they done the study of alcohol to know what the Bible says about it? Or are they being guided by their conscience? Will they look to you as an example and think it's okay for them to drink because they they see you drinking or or know about you drinking? Do they have, have the same willpower to drink without getting drunk that you have? Because if they slip into drunkenness, well, then they've crossed the line into to biblical sin. Would they be in that sin if they hadn't seen the example set for them by you that it was an okay thing to do? These are questions you got to ask yourself. This is especially important when you're involved in in some ministry with kids or students. What will those younger people think about drinking based on your activity? Or you try to keep, you know, your your home life at home and you only do your, your drinking at home. Well, if you only try to drink in privacy, what will those younger people think if they find out you drink and try to hide it. What kinds of other activities will they think it's okay to hide because you, their example and spiritual leader, tried to hide some activity from them? You can see that the seemingly small decision can actually start to create so many questions that it, it, it kind of gets overwhelming. But also consider your job of reaching the lost people around you with the gospel. 
How does your decision to drink affect your ability to do that? Well, in our culture, that's difficult to answer because everyone around you has different experiences. Some people have lost loved ones in drunk driving accidents. Others have had family members stuck in addiction or alcoholism. Others have, or others have had drunken family members even abuse them. You just can't know what private experiences people have had, but those experiences can shape what they think or assume about people who, who do that, who drink. Whether that's right or wrong, that's not up to us. But you have to consider that your choice to drink can potentially affect someone's opinion of you before they even know you. That may be enough to prevent them from ever responding to you giving them the gospel. That may sound unreasonable or unfair, but, but that's the reality sometimes. So the question is, think back of what we talked about in this series. First of all, where is your heart? Would you rather have a drink or would you rather preserve your chances at being able to serve them? Where is your mind? Would you rather serve yourself a drink or would you rather think in unity, humility, and sacrifice by setting aside what you want so you can serve others in your church body? And then last week, what are your goals? Where do you want to be in ministry? Does having a drink help you get there? Is it possible that not having a drink could help you get there? Those are all questions I can't answer for you. Those are questions I've answered for myself. But we all have liberty in Christ to make those kinds of decisions for ourselves. And sure, I can tell you what I think, but I can't be the one making your decisions. Nick and Zach can't be the ones think, or making your decisions for you. Trisha's really smart, but she can't make your decisions for you. Only you can do that. I just pray you'll commit to making those decisions wisely and biblically with your service to the Lord and to others in mind. And again, this is just one example, and I pulled it off the wall because it, it in my mind, connects so readily to the eating meat offered to idols example. But that's a negative example, deciding whether or not to do something that isn't directly related to your ministry by thinking about how it connects to your ministry. This next one is a positive example, and that's example two, designing how to serve. And this is the crux of what we're getting at in this series. By now, we all understand the importance of serving the Lord in and through our church body. It's what we're here to do. And it's why God put us together into a body of believers. We have work to do, but we have to do that work together. So where and how do you intend on serving in your church body? What is the role you play currently? What is the role you'd like to play in the future? Your decision to serve in a particular capacity obviously affects your service to the Lord and to your church body. And there's so many ways that you can be involved. And we, as the Young Adult Life Group, well, we have more time and energy to serve than anyone else in our church. And so the question is, what are the decisions you're making and what's your thought process as you're making them on, on how you want to serve? Is it just the things you like to do? Or is it because you're allowing God to shape your ministry the way he wants to? Hopefully, you all grab the second sheet with the service opportunities at our church. If you didn't grab one, grab one before you leave, but, but you can cheat off your neighbor for now. The, this sheet contains every service opportunity I could come up with, and I came up with it by asking a bunch of people. Steve helped me out a lot with this. There's a lot of opportunities at our church. Um, we go to a big church, and, and there's a lot of moving parts to keep this church running. So so as you're looking through this list, man, don't be surprised if you're unaware that some of these opportunities even, didn't, or even existed. 
like a counting team. What's, what, what's the counting team do? What do they count? Well, they, they count money after, after the church service on Sunday morning. That, that's all it is, so that, so that somebody else doesn't have to. Um, but this is why I wanted to throw this sheet together, because there's all kinds of opportunities that, that maybe you don't think of, or maybe you don't see other people doing. But you'll notice on the sheet that I've broken the opportunities down into categories, kind of based on who gets to serve in those roles. The top one is the anyone category. That's the stuff that most anyone can do. Anybody can win others to Christ in evangelism and, and build our church by adding new members to it. There's building and grounds crews. We have a coffee shop on Sunday mornings that, that requires people to, to help with. There's English as second language classes. There's stage crews on Sunday mornings. There's tech teams on Sunday mornings and Tuesday evenings. Look at them, they're back there right now. Thanks, guys. Then there's this category for church members, and this is the stuff that requires a little bit more trust. You, you can't just walk into our church and work with kids, for example. We have to know who you are and know that you're on our team so that so we only let people do these ministries who've been committed to being a part of our church, and, and in the case of children, you have to pass a background check. Um, but being a church member is easy. All you have to do is come to a meeting where we give you all the information about our church and what we believe, and you say, yes, I want to be a member of this church, and then bam, you're in, as long as there's no like weird, crazy skeletons in your closet, literally. Um, we, we let people join our church. But, you know, disciple somebody. Strengthen our church by strengthening its members. That's the point of discipleship, is building up other members. Um, man, that's about as pure an act of service as I can imagine. Stuff like the greeting team, the awareness team, the, the, the ushers, children's ministry, counting team, worship teams. There's, there's all kinds of stuff to do. But then there's this category for proven faithful servants. And these opportunities are reserved for those who've proven themselves faithful in other areas of ministry because these require a lot of hard work, dedication, and time to fill these roles. And because of that, you can't just sign up to be an Ignite counselor, for, an, for example. You've got to be invited once you've proven yourself faithful in ministry. Because youth pastor has to rely on his youth counselors. He has to know that they're, they're capable of leading and they're capable of, of, of serving in ministry in a way that is reliable. And sometimes this is frustrating because the truth is you, you don't get to decide when you're proven faithful in ministry. That's kind of up to the ministry leaders you're, you're serving under. And and sometimes this is frustrating because you might not always agree that someone in one of these roles deserves to be there. Well, the truth is none of us deserve to serve the Lord in any capacity. But also keep in mind that chances are good you don't see the whole picture of other people's service. So my recommendation is just focus on proving yourself a faithful servant and let God guide you and direct your ministry. There's nothing wrong with expressing desire to work in these roles. These are things to work towards. If this is what you want to do, say so. Just don't get frustrated if it takes you a while to get there because this requires patience and faithfulness. But so does this next category for proven faithful leaders. And these are leadership roles over groups and ministries that require you to first prove that you can handle such responsibility. That might seem like a lot of proving, but... but that's the reason why I think ministries in our church tend to be successful because the leadership of our church, man, takes its job to train people seriously. And we try our best to use ministry opportunities to build people up into capable leaders. Yeah, it takes time, but man, it's worth it because at the end of the day, 
people are more able to minister as a result of their time spent in these other ministries that maybe wouldn't have been their first choice. And you can look around at different ministries and life groups of our church and see that many capable leaders have been grown right here at our church. And I'm certainly no exception, and I'm grateful every day that I, got to be a, that I get to be a part of the church I grew up in. Um, I love it, and it's an honor. But the same can be true of you if you seek to grow and serve the Lord. But this list, this list only contains the official ways that you can serve in the official capacities. Of course, there's other opportunities. We talked about being intentional with the new high school grads coming into the well next week and making them feel welcome. I'm not passing around a sign-up sheet for you guys to say, yes, I agree to be uh, welcoming and, 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 and welcome them. Like, that's just all of our jobs, so let's just all do it. We'll talk next week about our summer outreach nights and being intentional with those by inviting friends and making new people feel welcome to spend time with us. That's the whole point, is to provide an opportunity for new people to get to know us without feeling like they have to come in and do church with us on a Tuesday night by just hanging out with us and playing a random game on a Monday night. So whether it's ultimate frisbee or wiffle ball or kickball or capture the flag, it, it doesn't matter what the game is because the reason is for us to bring other people in and make them feel welcome and to be friends with them and to earn the influence in their life so that we can serve them the way Jesus serves us. Does that make sense? We'll talk more about that next week. But man, as we wrap up, just consider where and how you will serve. We've spent this whole series talking about the importance of following Jesus' example. We talked about having the heart of a servant the way Jesus did. Consider your heart and your decisions and ask why you're wanting to make a decision the way you are. Is it out of love or is it out of selfishness? We talked about having the mind of a servant the way he did as well. So consider your thought process and ask if you're thinking the way Jesus would have been thinking. Because Jesus thought in unity, humility, and sacrifice for those around him. Are you putting yourself first in, in your decisions or are you putting those you're serving first? We talked about having the goals of a servant as well. Consider your goals or the, the goals of why you're serving and, and what you're trying to work towards and make your decisions in a way that's conducive uh, to, to reaching those goals. It's really simple. Just decide that you're going to serve the Lord with everything in your life. Make that big decision and let that guide all your small decisions from day to day. Because there's plenty of opportunity to serve the Lord, but you don't want your small decisions to get in the way of that. In fact, you want to use your decisions to build you and the others around you up so that you're more capable of serving. Know what it is that you want to get out of life. And if your heart's in the right place, you'll want to serve the Lord. Well, then just consistently do that with everything that you are. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this series, and I thank you so much for everything you've shown us in your word that, um, man, just, just points and directs us at our need to serve you and our need to, to serve others. You obviously provided the ultimate example for us when you as the creator of the universe humbled yourself to become a human being, to live a poor life, and then to be, to be beaten, mocked, and scorned, and and ultimately crucified on a cross because of your love for us. Man, that's the ultimate act of service, and, and nothing we do will, will obviously ever come close to that. Uh, but God, we want to commit our lives to you. We want to commit our service to you and to each other, and we just want to humble ourselves so that we can be a, a, 
in the smallest fraction of the servant you were. We obviously love you, Lord. You, you've, you've done everything for us that, that we could imagine. And so we just want to take our lives seriously and understand that life is short and we only have so much time to accomplish something for you and bring you glory. And so I pray that, I pray that we would do that. I pray that we would make it a point every day to wake up and allow you to guide our decisions through your word and through this decision-making process, Lord. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.